You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, amen, and thank you, church. We are so glad to be with you here today. What a great time of worship it has been as we've gathered together and sang and uh, given to the Lord and prayed and confessed our sin. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Again, that is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, in a sermon that is titled, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled. And uh, we will continue our sermon series through the Gospel of John today. Uh, Next week, we'll be taking a break for our Easter uh, message, but then we will uh, hopefully be back in the Gospel of John and continuing to make, uh, again, good progress through this book. Recently, I have been working a lot on the topic of catechisms, and we remember that these are uh, questions and answers that we ask uh, children and new believers in order to uh, help them understand uh, the word of the Lord and understand key doctrines. One of the best catechism questions that uh, I believe was written is from the Heidelberg Catechism, and it asks this question. It says, what is your only hope in life and death? Or, Or put another way, what is your only comfort in life and death. Now there's a short answer and a long answer and I want to read the long answer to you this morning because it is as follows. That I am not my own but belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to follow him. This is our hope in life and death that we belong to our Savior. And we need to get back to the reminder that our only hope in life and in death is that we belong to Christ. Our hope is not in this world. It is not in, again, the politicians or the powers. It is in Christ alone. And today we're going to talk about the encouragement that Jesus offers his disciples in a crucial moment. And we'll look at one of the most famous verses we know today, again, in John 14, 6. So let us look to his word together. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading the ESV, but you follow along in your translation. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your graciousness to us. And Father, we just ask that as we come to this time of looking into your word, that Lord, you would be pleased. Lord, you would be glorified. You would be honored. 
Father, we pray today that as we examine this text together, you would encourage us, Father, that you would strengthen us by your word. And Lord, that today we would see growth. We would see fruit. Father, we would see believers walk more closely in line with your word. And Father, we would see lost people called to know you. Lord, we pray these things and we ask these things in your son's name, by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at this passage, the beginning of it says, let not your hearts be troubled. And we need to realize that as we see this begin in this way, let not your hearts be troubled, we tend to read that and and miss a little bit of the force and the power that's behind it. Because this phrase is an imperative sentence. We remember back to English class, maybe for some of you it's been a little longer than others, right? But we remember back to English class, And we remember that imperatives are commands. And if you don't remember it, you'll remember it now. An imperative is a command, right? So here Jesus is not saying, I wish you wouldn't be troubled. This is a command. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't be troubled. But how in the world can Jesus say that? You see, so often when this text is preached, it's, it's pulled out of a context a little bit, right? We just examined this, and we haven't been reading it verse by verse and going through it in the way that, that we have. And so as we've looked at it, we realize that there is a whole bunch of story going on that leads up to this moment. There's a whole bunch of context that tells us why Jesus would begin this statement, let not your hearts be troubled. Think about what Jesus has just told these disciples Over the last several weeks, we have seen that Jesus has revealed to his disciples that he would be betrayed. And not only would he be betrayed, he would be betrayed by one of his disciples. Jesus has revealed that he would go to the cross and die a painful death. He's told them he was leaving them and going somewhere that they could not go. And finally, that even Peter, generally recognized as one of the best of the disciples, would deny Jesus three times that very evening. This is the context. All of that stuff sounds pretty difficult, sounds pretty hard, and it sounds pretty painful. It sounds like a lot of reasons to be troubled. And yet, Jesus commands them, do not let your hearts be troubled. In the same way, we look around us at the world and we look at our own hearts We look at the tragedies of this world, maybe our own health and our own finances, maybe our our strength and situations that we're facing, and all of these things. And like the disciples, we ask, how can we not be troubled with all that is happening? How can we not be troubled with the pain that we see and we experience on a daily basis? How can we fulfill this command, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus gives these disciples the same message he again gives us today. Don't be troubled. But Jesus is not just blindly telling them everything will be okay. He's not just saying it's all sunshine and roses. He's not blindly optimistic. Rather, there's a basis. 
There are reasons that they should not be troubled, and Jesus lays those out today. And so what I want to do is show you how in three specific ways the Lord encourages his disciples here. He says, let not your heart be troubled, and he encourages them, encourages them again, in three specific ways. Three reasons that they should not have troubled hearts. And the first one is his deity. Again, just as with let not your hearts be troubled, we see that Jesus makes a deity statement here in verse 1. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. But the, the continuation here is that just with that phrase, let not your hearts be troubled, both of the verbs here are imperative. Believe in the Father. This is a command. Believe also in me. Also a command. Right? These are command statements from Jesus. And the idea here behind this is that they should believe in Christ just as they believe in the Father. And so this is a key statement where Jesus is pointing to his deity, his being God. His comfort for them begins with belief in God. Now, Jesus is not giving them a magic recipe sermon Right? We've, we've all heard a magic recipe sermon before. Do these four things and everything will be perfect. It's not what he's doing. Jesus is saying rather here that the foundation of encouragement, the very first thing in let not your hearts be troubled, is belief in the Father. Well, why is that? It's because it is impossible to truly have hope apart from God. It is impossible to truly have hope apart from belief in a sovereign, holy, gracious God. I mean, look around. I started thinking about this. I know I told Rosalind this week. I told our staff this week. I've told so many people the same phrase this week. I feel like I've repeated it 150 times. If I did not believe in a just and holy God, I would be so hopeless and depressed at everything going on around me. I would be a depressed bowl of jello just sitting here rocking back and forth. But I do believe in such a God. And there is such a God who is working all things together. And we have to remember the same thing, right? Jesus was telling the disciples in that moment that God is sovereign and has a plan, right? The plan may not always look good or fun. In this case, Jesus, again, was going to the cross, but the results and the fruit of that was amazing unlike any other. Jesus is saying, trust me and the Father's plan. Believe in me. Because the temptation there for the disciples would have been, what in the world is about to happen? What are we going to do? They, they, it was this lack of, of seemingly trust at this point. We don't know what's about to happen. We don't know where things are going. And so they needed to believe in the Father and His goodness and His good plan. Jesus says, believe in me. In the same way, whenever we are tempted to be discouraged about anything, when our hearts are troubled about anything, believe in God. For he is exactly what we need no matter the circumstances. Any circumstance that we find ourselves troubled about, God is the ultimate answer. And so hope in any situation, regardless of, of what the uh, hopelessness of that situation is, it's found in believing in God. 
Are you troubled about the injustice of the world, the, the tragedies, criminals and wickedness and corruption? Rest assured, there is a just God on the throne who will dole out just punishment. Wickedness will be totally cut off from the face of the earth. Every moment that God waits to execute his judgment is an act of mercy. Because when he ex executes judgment, there is no hiding and there is no end. Evil will be punished in a sinner's hell. And so when you see injustice, when we see tragic things, we remember that there is a just God who will righteously punish all evil and evildoers. Are you troubled about your health? God is the great physician with a plan for your life that is perfect. He knows every hair on your head and he knew and numbered your days before the world even existed. Are you worried about the weather? God can calm the seas because he created them and every star and every planet and the sun and the moon and everything else. If you're troubled about your finances, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Are you troubled about anything? God is perfect. And so we need to remember that the first answer for any discouragement in our life is to turn to God and believe in Him. Even with sin. Are you troubled over your sin? Well, turn to Christ and believe in Him and throw yourself on His mercy and be saved by His grace. There is nothing, no pain, no heartbreak, no trouble for which believing in the Lord is not the answer. See, there's a reason that Jesus is the Sunday school answer because truly, he is the answer for everything. So we are not discouraged. But here's the thing, that requires us to have a high view of God. It requires us to believe in the fact that he really is God, right? We have to believe, again, in his deity. And most of us, again, say we believe in God, right? We've talked about this many times here at Bellevue. We believe in God. But the God we believe in is so often not the God of Scripture. He's a small and weak God. He's a God that just gets by barely holding things together. And that is not the God of Scripture. In order for us to take comfort from who God is, we need to realize who He is. It means we see God as high and mighty and all-powerful and sovereign, and anything less means that we have no hope. But He is nothing less than that. And because of that, we can have hope in even the most hopeless situations. We can laugh in the face of the storm because we know the God of the universe. And so if you are hopeless, if you're discouraged, if you are troubled, the first thing that we need to do is believe in the God of the Bible and to have a healthy view of just how powerful and amazing he is. When we do that, all our fears, all our troubles, all our pains, they seem so small in comparison. The second word of encouragement here that Jesus offers to the disciples is that of our destination in verses 2 through 4. This is our eternal destination, right? Jesus says here, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. Right? The, the Greek word here is mone. Um, people love to translate this as mansions. Um, there's not really a textual basis for that. Um, and I think one of the reasons that people like to translate this as mansions is because it appeals to our appetite and our materialism. 
the word mansion is truly not there. It comes from the Latin uh, translations of the Catholic Church, but it's not there in the original language that the gospel was written in. The word there in the original language is the word dwelling places. And this teaches us something. I'm not just telling you this just because I want to get into the nitty-gritty of the Greek, although I love it. It teaches us something. That this destination is not all about the magnificence and, and the materialism. Yes, it is going to be magnificent. But what Jesus is pointing out here is that it is about multitudes and stability. He says, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If we look at the emphasis and the force of this sentence, it tells us that our eternal dwelling place is a place for the many. Innumerable, uncountable multitudes, according to Revelation. Multitudes of believers from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is not just for the disciples, as the next few verses will make clear. It's for the multitudes of people who believe in Christ and are saved by His grace. And so we don't need to worry that heaven will run out of room. It is a place for the many. And if you are a believer in Christ, this is a promise for you. I've gone to prepare a place for you. Furthermore, from this we see that our eternal dwelling is a place of permanence. It's not transient or temporary. right? It's not a hotel room, as some have suggested. It is a dwelling place, according to Jesus. It's a place designed in such a way that we are to live there, to dwell there. A place in which life thrives and things are perfectly as they should be. This is the encouragement of our destination. This is what we as believers look forward to in eternity. That's why we sing so much about heaven. And Jesus essentially says here, if, if it wasn't true, why would I say so? Jesus is telling them, why would I lie to you about this? I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be as well. Jesus says clearly here, I go to prepare a place. One commentator, he wrote it this way. He said, love always prepares a welcome. And the commentator's right. If we love someone, we will prepare for them if they're coming over, right? Uh, But perhaps the, the best example is one that is very real and imminent in my life at the moment. And uh, that is the illustration of preparing a nursery for a new baby, right? At this point, you all know Hezekiah is scheduled to make his grand entry this week. And uh, for months, Rosalind and I have been preparing for his arrival, right? We decorate his room. We've been hanging pictures. We put his crib together, cleaned out all of my home office stuff out of his bedroom so that we can prepare his dwelling place, his room, And when we think about the Lord going and preparing a place for us, we should think of it in a similar way. He is preparing a place for his children whom he loves dearly. And it is a place that we will stay and dwell in. And I'm just amazed by this. Because it is an amazing thing. But the most amazing part of all of it is what Jesus says next. He says, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus tells us that our eternal dwelling place is not simply for us and other believers, but that he is bringing us there to be with 
him, to be with our Savior. Now look, we, we talk a lot about seeing our loved ones who were believers, right? We talk about seeing them again, and that is exciting. But the main attraction of heaven is not seeing the believing loved ones again. It's not the mansion over the hilltop. It's not the streets of gold. It is seeing and being with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the main attraction. That is the best part, that where he is, we will be also. Again, I I tell you, we sing so much as believers about heaven and uh, we've talked about this both in uh, again, the state of the church the other night and in, uh, even what Brandon was talking about this morning, that we at Bellevue try to take a very serious and um, doctrinal approach to what we sing. And the reason I bring that up is because I think so often we get the wrong idea of heaven from the songs we sing and the depictions that we see. See, if heaven's all about the mansion, the gold, and the crowns, we're not looking forward to anything different. We just want the best of this world. Not what Christ has for us. And this is why this may bother you, but I cannot stand the song, Mansion Over the Hilltop. Why? Listen to the words. I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. I've got a mansion over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder, we will never more wander but walk the streets that are purest gold. Though often tempted, tormented, and tested, and like the prophet, my pillow was stone, and though I find here no permanent dwelling, I know he'll give me a mansion my own. Don't think me poor or deserted or lonely. I'm not discouraged. I'm heaven bound. I'm just a pilgrim in search of a city. I want a mansion, a harp, and a crown. Now, when we sing it, sounds good, right? But when we listen to those words, not once in there is Christ mentioned. But you know what is? The words, I want. A gold mansion that's silver lined, a mansion, a harp, and a crown. It's repeated over and over, and that's the problem. We're not comforted by the thought of eternity with Christ. Instead, we're comforted by the thought of having a bunch of nice stuff, and that's not the point. And that's why so many of us aren't comforted at all by that thought. The point is that we are with Christ. Another reason we're not comforted by heaven is the way it's depicted for so many of us. We tend to think of heaven, and whenever we see it depicted on TV or in movies or things like this, we we see heaven as this cold, white, empty place that looks really sterile. No wonder we're not comforted by it. Instead, biblically, we see that heaven is a place of joy, feasting, and fellowship with God and other believers. It's a place full of life, perfectly so, without sin or death or pain or tears. And so my point here is that if we get the wrong idea about heaven, we will not be comforted. But if we remember that our eternal dwelling place was prepared for us in love by Christ, and that we will be with him for eternity, our hearts will be comforted and not troubled. So believers, let not your heart be troubled. Heaven is a wonderful place. But don't miss the wonder of heaven that God loved you and redeemed you so that you can go where he is also. The final encouragement of the destination portion of this text is that he will return for us. The final encouragement here 
uh, is that regardless of your end times views, we can all agree that Jesus is coming back. And when the Lord chooses to bring this world to an end, he will take us to himself. Fear not, believer. You will not be left behind. The Lord will take you to himself. Do not be discouraged. Let not your hearts be troubled. We have a glorious destination ahead of us. Thirdly, and finally today, I want you to see that we are to take hope from Christ's declaration here in verses 5 and 6. Verse 4, Jesus told his disciples that they knew the way, and truly they did, just as sure as they were looking at him, right? But Thomas asked the question that no one else did. They were probably all thinking it. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we possibly know the way to get there? And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, we could spend eons on this one verse. The verse teaches us so much, but it primarily teaches us one thing. There is one way to that destination that we long for. There is one way to the God we are to believe in. There is one way, and that is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way. Now, for me to stand here in a Southern Baptist church that is conservative in theology and say Jesus is the only way to heaven should not be a big surprise and it should not be a big controversy. We should all say amen, and likely we all do, and and that's great. But guys, say that in many other churches, indeed most churches in the United States, or out in public, and you will be ridiculed and, as we have seen, maybe even attacked. Ligonier Ministries prepares a state of theology survey each year that's done with these very high research standards. And this is what they found in 2022. I'm not talking about lost people, I'm talking about believers. So-called. 56% of evangelicals believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. That's more than half. 43% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 26% of evangelicals, again, more than a quarter, believe that the Bible is not literally true. That is appalling. These are the basics. These are the fundamentals. And if you agree with those statements, right, if you agree that the Lord accepts the worship of all religions, Jesus wasn't really God, just a man, and uh, the Bible's not literally true, then guess what? You are not an evangelical, and you're certainly not a Christian. They attack the very heart of John 14, 6. Because Jesus is the way, not a way. Right? This is a definite article. The way. There are not multiple ways to God. There are not multiple paths to God. All roads don't lead to the Lord. Rather, it is a narrow way. The Bible tells us that Christ is the way, The only way. He is truth. The Bible is literally true. There is no your truth and my truth. There is only the truth. And he's the life. The world tells you that you can live however you want, but Christ has set the example for us, and according to God's word, he gave us his righteousness and gave us a new life that we would no longer be dead in our sins and lost, but saved. Again, that if we believe in him, 
We are saved by his grace. It's the exclusivity of the gospel is the theological term for this. That only people who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ are saved. Again, it shouldn't be controversial. This is the plain teaching of this text. Uh, We cannot be universalists. We cannot be people who believe that, well, you know, they they may not believe in the same God we do, but they're good people. It doesn't matter. And so this, this should encourage us in, in two specific ways. You're wondering, how, what does this have to do with not my heart not being troubled? This should encourage us in two specific ways. First of all, Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life means that we are saved on the basis of who Jesus is, not who we are, right? So if it was up to us, it's hopeless and we are dead in the water from the very beginning. But because it's all of God's grace, it's not up to us and our ability. It's based on Christ bearing our punishment on the cross. So we know that we are saved by his grace and nothing can separate us from him. So no matter what we face, whether life or death, we are his and belong to him and that should keep us from despair because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Not us. Furthermore, if he was just a way, a truth, and a life, who's to say what's right and what's wrong? Who's to say, you know? That's the thing that people say. But when we look at Scripture, we realize there is a definite right. There's a definite wrong. There is a pure and objective morality, meaning we can know for sure what's right and what's wrong. We don't have to wonder. And so the encouragement, again, is that we, as believers belong to Christ, and again, him being the way means that it, it's all of his grace. But furthermore, there's another encouragement here, and that encouragement is that we have a mission. Again, this declaration from Jesus, it, it tells us about this exclusivity that people are only saved through Jesus and by believing in him and repenting of sin. That's it. It's the only way. And so our encouragement here is that God has put us here for a purpose of sharing that gospel with this hopeless world. He's put us here with the purpose of it. And again, as a Southern Baptist, that should be part of who we are, right? To say, oh, we need to share this gospel of hope. But again, why don't we? And I think that it comes down to this understanding of hope. Psalm 14 says that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. Right? Now, yesterday, a lot of people were acting the fool on April Fool's Day. But the biblical fool is one who says there is no God. Now, to help you understand this, I want to quote the wise theologian, Mr. T. I pity the fool. And the reason is this. I pity the fool that says there is no God because that person is utterly hopeless. I pity the fool because I would be there were it not for God's grace. I pity them because they're walking around in this life without the only hope that we can have. And so it's no wonder that our our world is overly medicated on anxiety and depression medication because they're walking around without hope. Hope. 
And here's the thing, if, we, if as we said at the beginning, it's impossible to have hope without God, and Jesus is the only way, the exclusive way to God, then we better have a relationship with him, and the only way to help this hopeless world is to share the gospel of hope with these people. But if we don't pity them, if we don't have compassion on them, then we won't do it. Listen, I, I pity every person walking faithlessly through this life because they cannot possibly have hope. And so it's our job as God's people to go and share that hope with them. First Peter tells us that we should be ready to give a defense when people ask for the reason for our hope. Hope is so different in this hopeless world that when people see believers having hope, they want to know what that is all about. They want to know what is the way. How can I have this hope? And they're sitting here as Thomas and they're saying, Hi, what's the way? And we as God's people have to point them to the way. We should be ready to tell them who is the source of that hope. But again, if we don't have the right view of God, if we don't believe in him, if we don't rightly understand the hope that we have in eternity, then we're not going to have any hope to share with them about and they probably won't even recognize it and ask us in the first place. And so as we conclude our service today, I just want to share this as a final word of challenge and application. If you are a believer here today, you have a mission. But you have reasons to hope. We have a sovereign and just God. He has a place prepared for us with him, and he has provided the way to salvation. And it's not based on how good we are, how hard we work, or what we can do. It is based on the blood of Christ and God's grace. So let not your hearts be troubled. Walk in hope. But if you have not believed, there is hope yet. Maybe you are sitting here today hopeless. Turn to Christ. Believe in him. Repent of your sins. Throw yourself on his mercy. This is the way. The only way to the Father. And consequently, it's the only way to hope. And so I, I stand before you saying the same thing that I started with. My only hope in life and death is that I belong to him. May we walk in that hope this week. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you have shown us, Lord, for the joy and the hope that we can have in you. And Father, I ask now that as we move into this time of reflection and Lord, as we think over your word, that Father, you would work in us, you would move in our midst, that your will would be done, that you would shape us and mold us through your word into who you want us to be. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people of hope. Lord, I pray we would not leave here discouraged today. Father, joyously and joyfully anticipating the future, knowing that you are in control, knowing you have a place for us. Lord, knowing we have a mission ahead. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. 
We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.